This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. It's a day of reckoning in Brazil as police round up hundreds of people accused of being involved in the storming of government buildings in the nation's capital. President Lula da Silva has returned to the city of Brasilia to survey the damage, vowing to hold those responsible accountable. His predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, remains in the US. Correspondent Barbara Miller reports. Taking stock of the damage to the buildings at the heart of Brazil's democracy. Officials and lawmakers returned to the Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace to find furniture ripped out and overturned, glass and artwork smashed and water damage to floors. Outside, those suspected of involvement in the attacks were rounded up and the camps they've set up to protest the result of last year's presidential election were dismantled. Emotions were frayed. One man prayed, claiming those in the camp were peaceful patriots. Draped in the Brazilian flag, another protester implored police not to arrest people. Stop being puppets, she said. Do what's right. Supporters of President Lula da Silva are outraged by the assault on the capital. Cristina is a street vendor in Rio de Janeiro. They have a right to protest, but not to break other people's things. That is wrong. I don't agree with that. I don't go into your house and destroy your house just because I don't like you. President Lula returned to the capital, taking in the damage and promising to hold those responsible accountable. Brian Winter is a Brazil analyst and editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly magazine. I think that Lula had come to power uh, over the past week trying to figure out what to do about these protests. Some in his government, including his own defense minister, were advocating for a certain tolerance. That's over now. I think that you'll see uh, a harder line, which, which frankly carries its own risks. It risks inflaming things and, and, and continuing to cause problems in weeks and months ahead. Jair Bolsonaro remains in Florida. He left for the U.S. shortly before President Lula's inauguration. Some within President Joe Biden's Democratic Party have called for the former president to be extradited to Brazil. Brian Winter. He is certainly politically responsible for what happened because he spent so much of 2022 casting doubt on the integrity of Brazil's election system. He never explicitly recognized the election result. But was he aware of exactly what would happen? Was he criminally responsible? That's less clear. The White House will say only it's received no request regarding Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil. This is Barbara Miller reporting for AM. Juliano Cortinhas is a professor of international relations at the University of Brasilia, and I asked him if there's still a big security presence on the streets of the capital. Well, I just came back from the university, so I passed uh, around the Three Power Square, uh, there is a police blockade there. A lot of police forces on the street, but the city is running normally, buses are running, uh, so everything is back at, at work. But inside the main, the main buildings, uh, everything, is, uh, everything seems to be destroyed. So a lot of 
a lot of disruptions uh, were made inside the buildings. President Lula is vowing that the protesters will face the full force of the law. Do you think people are going to face trial, even go to prison for this? I think that a lot of them will, but I'm not sure about the political authorities that are also responsible for for these acts. And I mean current politicians and uh, previous ones like President Bolsonaro, for example. I think that he is one of the main responsibles, uh, responsible for this since he's been uh, talking about military interventions, about uh, coup d'etat since the beginning of his own ad- administration. He didn't recognize Lula's victory um, and he's been uh, telling his supporters that they should act somehow. This was one of the most serious outbreaks of political violence in Brazil for years. Do you think Bolsonaro's supporters will try again? They may if the Lula uh, administration doesn't act right properly. And what I mean by that is that uh, uh, an important reform of our defense system and our uh, public security system uh, should be uh, put in place. I see this moment as an opportunity. I think that uh, we've been, we in the academia have been talking for many years about the necessity to change uh, things in, in the defense establishment imposing the civilian control, the civilian democratic control over the military. And there are a lot of people also talking about the necessity uh, to um, build a huge reform in our military police. So I think that now, since they clearly didn't respect authority, since there was a clear insubordination, I think we have an opportunity to do that. I'm not sure if Lula will do it. And if he doesn't, I'm afraid we can have a similar episode in the future. Do you think the former President Bolsonaro should return from the United States and and go back to Brazil? Certainly, uh, especially because he uh, supposedly is going to have to answer in the judiciary for his acts during his presidency. And uh, he must be investigated to see how connected he is to this um, to these episodes. That's Professor Giuliano Cortinas from the University of Brasilia. The peak of floodwaters has passed in WA's Kimberley, but authorities are warning the challenging recovery effort is only just getting underway. Hundreds of people remain displaced, dead pigs and cattle are strewn through townships, and the only highway linking northern Australia is severely damaged. National Regional Affairs reporter Erin Park was granted access to the emergency control hub in the Kimberley town of Broome to see what will happen from here. In a bunker-style office complex in the heart of Broome, emergency volunteers, army officers and incident controllers are moving quickly around a large room, plastered with maps and digital screens. And then, just in reference to the damage assessment, the contact with pastoralists to ascertain... Um, support required. Support required. Yeah, welfare. The, the mood is one of calm urgency. They're overseeing the large and complicated response to the flood crisis that's playing out across the central Kimberley. 
Incident controller Glenn Hall is with the Department of Fire and Emergency Services. Certainly uh, this, is, this is the largest scale that I've seen um, and, and there's con some considerable work to do. Over the last 48 hours, the bulk of the water has surged west towards the coast, decimating swathes of the Great Northern Highway as it goes. That damage, including the collapse of one of the main bridges across the Fitzroy River, has left the towns of Broome, Derby and Fitzroy Crossing cut off by road. Glen Hall says the most urgent concern is the 280 or so people evacuated from the Fitzroy Valley. Most of them are staying in temporary accommodation about 200 kilometres away in the town of Derby. He says each home will be checked before residents are flown back. So now I'm just ask for people's patience. There's an array of steps that we need to go through to assess when we can put people back on country. That's our priority as a team. So we'll conduct an initial damage assessment and then a more detailed flood assessment. And we've got more resources mobilised coming into the region to assist us in that plan. But we want to make sure that when people do go back, it's safe. Is there any feedback, Glenn, on how many of those houses may not be habitable or is it just too early to say? Yeah, at, at this stage, too early to say and I just cannot give you a definitive number. It, yeah, it is just too early. The flood-damaged houses are scattered across remote Aboriginal communities as well as the streets within the township of Fitzroy Crossing. It's expected some will have to be demolished, with conversations already underway about the pros and cons of rebuilding close to the river. There's growing concern about the health issues linked to the carcasses of animals swept downstream and drowned and the clouds of mosquitoes forming. Over in the town of Derby, local Aboriginal community leader Susan Murphy says the community has pulled together to support the evacuees. I think people are all looking after one another. Everybody is checking on one another. Um, and most of the um, Aboriginal corporations and the Shire and quite a few other businesses have helped with evacuations and making sure that people are placed and got clothing and food and blankets and things like that. And does that seem to be going pretty well so far? So far it is. I think the good thing about Derby is when the chips are down, everybody comes together as a family. We've still got the crime. We've still got people that are getting their cars and their houses broken into. That hasn't stopped. But at the end of the day, we're still all coming together to help one another. Derby Aboriginal Community Leader Susan Murphy ending Erin Park's report. After almost three years of closed borders, Chinese tourists have begun rolling their suitcases onto international flights once again. And Australia's tourism industry isn't the only one keen to cash in. Thailand heavily depended on Chinese travellers before the pandemic and is welcoming them back without any specific restrictions. Southeast Asia correspondent Mozoe Ford reports from Bangkok. With a spring in their step and gift bags in their hands, Chinese visitors walked through Bangkok's Suwamapum International Airport after the first commercial flight from China to Thailand in almost three years. Welcome to Thailand. Thank you. 269 visitors from Xiamen in China's southeast were on the first plane to land. Ah, very lucky to be the first wave arriving in China, arriving in Thailand. Yes, so, very exciting. It's a very friendly country. And uh, before the the COVID, we come here every year. And this time I take my family to come here. Uh, actually, I'm here for school and I'm also gonna uh, play, uh, like visit other places, especially in Phuket. 
Before the pandemic, Chinese travellers accounted for almost a third of all international visitors coming into Thailand. It was the country's biggest market by far. The tourism industry has been slowly rebuilding as COVID restrictions have been easing over the past 18 months. But there's no doubt the return of Chinese tourists will be a game-changer. Yutasak Supersorn is the governor of the Tourism Authority of Thailand. According to our estimate, uh, Chinese start to come back maybe not less than 5 million this year. It's really important for Thailand. Flight capacity is still low and airfares are high, so it will be a trickle, not a flood. But the industry needs the time to boost staff numbers, reopen hotels and increase transport. I think that we have time to get ready for, you know, the big wave that we come start from April. Some in Thailand have been worried about a COVID wave that might come too. But Public Health Minister Anutin Chanvirakun said hospitals would cope. He came to the airport as the first plane from China arrived to reassure people. We try to uh, make sure that they will, they will be safe here in our country and our people also will be safe. Like many countries, Thailand grappled with whether to ask travellers from China for pre-departure COVID tests and proof of vaccination. There's been confusing mixed messages from authorities, but the Public Health Minister finally confirmed there'd be no specific restrictions. Uh, we will be able to see our old friends coming back like before. Old friends with new money that Thailand's economy is counting on. This is Mazoe Ford in Bangkok reporting for AM. A lot of us might have given or received gift cards over Christmas, but some shoppers are finding out they're not always what they promise to be. The consumer watchdog, the ACCC, is monitoring complaints about gift cards, as Nick Grimm reports. They're small, they're impersonal. And for some, they're the gift that can't be beaten. I received one today and i got to say, I'm looking forward to using it. So <laughs> I'm, I think it has a lot of value. But that being said, after receiving some pretty shitty presents over the years, I'd say that getting gift cards is probably my best bet at the moment. For others, though, the little pieces of plastic take all the joy out of giving and receiving. I think gift cards are a waste of money because most of the, I'd say 60% of them aren't actually used and the companies actually keep them and don't do refunds on them when they should actually do refunds. And, you know, we get so many cards in our wallet these days and it's just not as easy as to keep track of them sometimes. And while no one wants to look a gift horse in the mouth, Gift cards can put the bite on you if you're not careful. Yeah, so I actually had to buy six gift cards for my team for Christmas. I thought they would be value for money, but we had to pay six bucks per gift card um, to actually load them. So then we ended up paying $36 extra just to get a gift card. In fact, as these shoppers discovered, special conditions can also make it difficult for those on the receiving end of the gift. But I feel like they're sometimes a little bit sneaky about when the expiry date is. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like... Um, I think they are pretty hard to redeem most of the time. We bought some of a website where it was so impossible to activate that we didn't spend any of the money. By the time we figured it out, it was actually expired. A few years ago, laws were changed so that gift cards must not expire for at least three years. But more recently, some major retailers have been refusing to accept gift cards for online and sale items without giving any reason or even a clear warning when the gift card was purchased. And consumers could be forgiven for thinking they're still getting sold short. Yeah, listen, I think gift cards have certainly come a long way, certainly over the last decade. Um, so very surprised to hear 
those sort of conditions. Professor Gary Mortimer researches retailing at QUT's Faculty of Business and Law after working in the retail sector for more than 25 years. He believes most retailers are doing the right thing. I think that would be the exception, not the norm. And in most cases, retailers are really uh, you know, keen for you to uh, redeem that gift card. But if that's not happening, shoppers do have some recourse. Jared Brody is the CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre. Look, if cards come with really restrictive conditions that make the value of the gift card go down in the consumer's eyes, then arguably the gift card issuer is using unfair contract terms, which are prohibited under our consumer law. Jared Brody from the Consumer Action Law Centre. Nick Grimm with our report. A collaboration between federal park staff and Indigenous rangers at the base of Uluru has saved one of Australia's smallest wallabies from extinction. It's one spark of hope in the middle of Australia's mammal extinction crisis, but environment groups want more action from the federal government, as Jane Barden reports. In the cool of the desert night near Uluru in central Australia, Shaylee Swan and her colleagues have been counting malas. So a mala is a very little wallaby, almost 15 centimetres. They're quite feisty little animals, but uh, very cute. The Parks Australia staff have worked with Indigenous rangers and traditional owners to save the malas from extinction. They were wiped out in the wild by feral cats, foxes and wildfire by 1991. But they've been reintroduced to Uluru in a two-square-kilometre cut-proof fenced enclosure. Arnungal traditional owners chose to bring back the population of Mala here because of the cultural significance. They help to build the fencing. They also do a lot of tracking. They also do a lot of fire management. The partners have declared the project a success because the 24 mala they released in 2005 have multiplied to 300. And we've um, been able to keep our enclosure predator-free, also ensuring that our population are healthy and ensuring there's no diseases. Along with five other similar projects in Northern Australia, they've increased the national population to 900. But the mala and other animals still face increasing threats. Climate change is a really high impact on threatened species. Now we've got hotter months of the year where we get higher risks of those wildfires burning hotter. Also those times of the year, it's higher rains where we get more erosion happening within the landscape as well. Have you noticed a change in average? temperatures as well over time. Oh yeah, with getting forecasts of at least a degree hotter every year. The World Wildlife Fund's Species Conservation Manager Darren Grover says the mala is a success in an otherwise poor picture. Sadly and almost shamefully Australia is a leader in mammal extinction. Uh, We've had over 30 mammals uh, go extinct since um, the arrival of Europeans in Australia. The federal government's most recent assessment found the number of species under threat grew by 8% in the last six years. It has responded by promising to more actively enforce biodiversity laws, double Indigenous ranger numbers and protect 30% of the Australian landscape. We need to use things like recovery plans which identify for each species or for groups of species what are the most important parts of the range of that species that need to have that highest level of protection. The Australian Conservation Foundation's Kelly O'Shaughnessy says more money is is also needed. 
We need about $2 billion of spending a year to help threatened species recover. Right now, there's only a couple of $100 million being put into that. At Uluru, the Arnungu are celebrating the wins. Managing the land using traditional knowledge as well as science. It's definitely great to see that all work together. Would you be hopeful that one day the mala could survive outside the fence as well? Oh, yes, of course. We we hope for that every day for all of our threatened species, you know, um, that we can have a better environment. It's all one step at a time. Parks Australia Indigenous Engagement Manager Shaylee Swan speaking to Jane Barden. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.